This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. Hi, folks. Mark Lautenschlager here in the control room, uh, which is really just my office at home with my laptop and my Adobe editing software. But uh, just a note as we're coming in to the podcast episode this week that uh, Sam and I ran long. And uh, we made the decision that we would take it and break it into a two-part series. So what you're going to be listening to is part one of our conversation about the last half of Ephesians chapter 6, the armor of God. We're going to stop at one point during that. I'm just splitting it in between verses. Uh, so we're going to stop and end this first episode, and then you can immediately pick back up with uh, part two, which will just jump right in in progress. Uh, we just decided to release it as two separate podcasts just to make consuming it a little bit easier. Each one worked out to be about the length of one of our regular podcasts, uh, and we just thought that it would be better to do it that way. So uh, when we sort of stop cold today, that's why that happens. Just remember to come right back and get part two. Uh, now we'll head to the recording, and I don't often get a chance to say that, but take it away, me. Welcome, friends, to another edition of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me uh, out there in space somewhere is our pastor of spiritual formation, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. And Sam and I are doing something completely new today. So if you hear traffic and birds singing and kids screaming or anything like that, I'm home in my uh, my home office, very comfortable here with my cup of coffee and my laptop and all this other stuff. And Sam, yet to, where are you, Sam? Describe this setting to them. I, I am on my back porch avoiding the chaos of four children and a dog <laughs> and a two-year-old that is potty training right now. So we're, we are taking advantage of the, of, the, of the advances in remote recording capability. This is something new that I've learned this week as I sort of dug around and looked. And this is something that podcasters have needed to solve is this ability to do these kinds of interviews over, you know, online and still get decent quality. So, uh, I mean, you know, it's going to be they're going to tell that we're not in the studio. But I think most people yeah. will be surprised to find out that we're just sitting with laptops some distance apart. And, uh, right. and having a conversation. With the turnpike traffic weighing in and birds yeah. chirping all around me. Well, it's, you know, it's all God's it's creation. It's all God's creation. That's right. That's right. So we're coming this week uh, to the last half of Ephesians chapter 6. And in fact, this is our final podcast for this series on Ephesians. Um, we're going to be doing some different stuff for the next few weeks. Uh, I think there's going to be a series, assuming that we keep to the same preaching schedule, which who knows exactly how that's going to be because of everything that's going on right now right. with the coronavirus and the suspension of everything as we're all sort of working virtually. But yeah. the plan was is that uh, after the Ephesians series that we would have um, 
several weeks on the topic of prayer, which I think would be timely for right now. Uh, and then we were going to get into a series in which uh, it was a combination of uh, Philippians and Ecclesiastes, which I think Correct. is a fascinating idea. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be good. It's going to be real good because those two books come at the the same issues from polar opposite ends. Yeah. They land in the same place, but the way that they're presented, it's going to be fascinating. Yeah. So, uh, But today we're going to finish up with the book of Ephesians. And uh, I have to admit, I'm a little sad. Uh, it's been I, I've been enjoying Sam watching you become a convert to Paul's <laughs> prison epistles. So behind the scenes, Mark and I have always had these conversations that as a pastor, whenever I'm asked to preach, I love narratives and I always cringe from Paul because he just he just says it. <laughs> you know, he's like, "Bam, here's the truth." I like taking narratives and telling stories, but honestly, through this through this study in particular, I've become much more appreciative of Paul yeah. and and his letters. It's awesome. It's been a great it's been a great study. Yeah. It has been. The thing that I've always appreciated about Paul is that it's not it's not a hundred percent just cut and dried. I'm going to tell you exactly how you're supposed to live, um, but it's very logical. He builds with, and and you even mentioned this in our last episode. You said that. Paul always does the teaching first and then gives the application. Right. Uh, and I just enjoy that style. I like somebody who says, okay, here's the principle. And now that we've got that principle down, let's talk about how then shall we live. Right. Um, as opposed to some of those narratives where you go through the whole narrative and I find myself sitting off the side going, what's the point? <laughs> what, what, what's the point? So. Anyway, but we've enjoyed this, and today we come to the last half of Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to be launching into the armor of God. Now, I will also let you folks know that when Sam and I shared our notes with each other, um, things got a little out of control. <laughs> because I have six pages of notes, and Sam has, let me see how many you have. Um, I'm going to pull this up and say print just to see how many pages things you have. You have seven pages. So Not to the, be outdone. Between it's the, only one paragraph on the seventh page. <laughs> but I was not outdone. You were not outdone. So, <laughs> so between you and I, we have uh, 13 pages of notes to get through. And I suspect that we're going to be here until next Friday. Yeah, Mark's response to me was, this is going to be a six-week podcast. I hope not, <laughs> because that's going to be a lot of fun to edit, if so. But we are going to be talking about the armor of God, and I think that for me, this was an interesting – this whole passage is like metaphors. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, Paul opens up, verse 10, he writes, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And I, you know, the thing that I thought was really cool about this verse is that I, as I was sort of breaking this down, um, the word that's used for finally is in something called the genitive case in Greek. And that means from now on or for the rest of time, basically. So this is more than just a conclusion to a letter. This is that's Paul cool. saying, hey, you know what? This is how things are going to be from now on. I thought that was an interesting opening. He's like, okay, that's cool. from now on, this is what I want you to know. Um, but he's talking about spiritual warfare, right? Right. And spiritual warfare, as you note in your uh, your opening paragraph here, spiritual warfare requires strength. The interesting thing about um, the strength of his might, and I'll just get you with my, one more of my Greek thing, because I I'm Mister Exegetical. I take all these passages apart and I make careful notes about the type of words being used because I find mm-hmm. tense mood and voice to be fascinating, which I know makes me weird, uh, but I do find tense mood and voice to be fascinating. The uh, the phrase for be strong is something called the present passive imperative. 
And a present passive imperative tells us that God must be the source of the strength and that the strengthening must be ongoing. That's right. It's a passive action. So he is the one doing it. And so that's fascinating. I mean, the way that that Paul always defines strength, one of the most famous passages that lots of people lean on is when Jesus says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And so the idea here is, you know, when it says be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, it's not like we're mustering up something that we have. It's recognizing, when we recognize our limitations, when we humble ourselves and grab hold of what he offers to us, that's when we find strength, (laughs) not in ourselves, but from him. Now, the need for strength, obviously, uh, I mean, as Paul's going to describe to us what the the armor of the Lord is, I mean, one of the first things I thought about is the story of David um, back with, in, with Goliath. And you brought up an interesting thing this week because you asked me huh. this week, you said, <laughs> hey, Mark, why didn't David wear Saul's armor going out against Goliath? And I said, well, it was too big for him. You know, it was too heavy. Which, he, could, he couldn't deal with it because that's what I was always told in Sunday yeah, school. Yeah, that's every Sunday school ever. Yeah, <laughs> it is. And in fact, and then you said, "Nope, go read it again." And you're and you were pointing. David said he wouldn't wear Saul's armor because he hadn't tested it. And in fact, you pointed out that David was in the prior chapter was described as being Saul's armor bearer. Yeah. So the idea, like every Sunday school ever teaches, that you know David's just drowning in Saul's armor. You know, which. To, to the point of this passage, you have to be strong to carry that armor, to bear the armor. So he starts with be strengthened in the Lord, and then he says, you know, to put on the armor. But in that passage with David, one of the things that I love there is, you know, his response to Saul is, I can't go with these. I haven't tested them. Well, he, he's the armor bearer. He's the yeah. one responsible for them. He knows all about them. He's carried them everywhere. He's polished them. He's done all these things with them. And yet he says that I have not tested them. And so the message behind that that's really cool is as David's about to go fight Goliath, what he says right before that is the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. So he's saying God is my armor. And then right after that, when he's standing in front of Goliath, you know, when we in the Greek, when it uses that term armor, we tend to think of just the shell over the body. Uh, but the Greek term means all of it. It's it's your weaponry. It's your it's your shoes. It's the breastplate. It's the helmet. It's all of it together. And so when David stands in front of Goliath, he's he's pointing out Goliath's armor when he says, "You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. You come to me with all that armor, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of Hosts, the God of the armies of Israel." And so what David is saying is, I've tested this armor. <laughs> I know how he delivers me. Put all your, your physical armor away. I've got a far better armor. And so thinking about that this week when we were looking at the armor of God here in Ephesians 6, I mean, that was just in my mind, this idea that I've not tested the armor and that's why I wouldn't wear it. And I'm, I'm thinking about this as being, this is the armor that, that God has provided for us. So this, yeah. is, this is armor that we know and, going into it that we can rely on this armor. And by the way, you've heard, you've, we've both heard this preached before, but when he goes out against Goliath, the way that that story is told, 
the scriptures describe him as this massive bronze armor figure with scaled armor and the javelin thrust between his shoulder blades that would have looked like a tail. The scripture goes out of its way to describe Goliath as a serpent, right? And Mm -hmm. here comes David dressed in the armor of God alone going against him. And so it's instructive that you know, David is going up against the serpent. In this passage, we are going up against the great serpent, the enemy, spiritually, and spiritual battle against the devil and his minions. Hmm. Now, Paul had a model for this. Uh, both of us made notes about this, is that uh, Paul was obviously had, he was under house arrest, so he was going to see the Praetorian guard around him pretty much all day long. So Roman armor was something that Paul was very familiar with. Um, and that's verse 11 says, uh, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, which, again, you were just talking about the fact that we're going to be going up against the devil, in this case, spiritual warfare, the serpent. But he begins to describe the, the armor of God. You know what struck me in verse 11 hmm. was this idea that, that Paul said, put on the whole armor of God. He didn't just say put on the armor of God or put on, you know, the relative, the, the, the pieces that you need from the armor of God. But Paul said, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So the first thing that occurred to me was we don't get to pick and choose the pieces that we want to wear. All of these things, as, as I was breaking this passage down and looking through it, Sam, all of these things work together mm-hmm. with each other. And they're not yeah. meant to stand on their own. Yeah, that's an awesome point. You just, I mean, you think about it. If you take, there's six pieces of this armor that Paul is going to lay out. And so two of them are on the arms. You've got a sword and a, and a shield. And then the, the other four kind of go vertically from the top down where you have a helmet, a breastplate, a belt, and then the shoes. But if you take any one of them away, they make you absolutely vulnerable. You, you, you're, you're no longer effective as a, as a soldier if you take any one of them away. I think that's a brilliant point. Mm. Yeah, and the uh, now you had a note here as I'm looking at your notes, <laughs> which are which are actually a little more dense than mine. I, I think that uh, smaller font, s- smaller font. That's what it is. <laughs> so, so I had six pages in bigger font, and you had seven pages in little tiny font that someone can barely read here. That Paul is uh, drawing from Isaiah fifty nine seventeen, um, where it's talking about the Lord there, and and the. The story or what's going on in Isaiah 59 is that the Lord becomes enraged by the lack of justice. There's not justice in this thing, the situation that's going on. And verse 17 says, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. And then from there on, as you imagine, it doesn't go well for the enemies of the Lord. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but, you know, that's a, you know, so this picture of putting on this armor before you go out to do spiritual warfare, um, I think is, you know, is one that, that's something that's repeated, the Lord says it about himself, and it's repeated in other places in Scripture. What struck me was this idea of preparation. In other words, we're going to be facing enemies out there it says not flesh and blood enemies we that verse is just ahead but um this idea that we need to prepare ourselves so so looking at the various pieces of armor and what they represent i think kind of lays out a roadmap in terms of how we prepare ourselves yeah and i love the fact that when you go to that passage from isaiah fifty nine seventeen. 
the righteousness as a breastplate he gives to us, the helmet of salvation he gives to us. But notice what he doesn't give to us. That passage goes on and says, he put on garments of vengeance for clothing. Right. That's not ours. Right. We don't get to wear that. Paul doesn't include that. He wrapped himself. So we clothe ourselves, as, as Ephesians talked earlier, we clothe ourselves in gentleness and humility. He's the one that gets to wear the vengeance. We, our weapons, come with love. Verse 12 says, uh, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Sam, that sounds like I'm going up against the biggest tag team of bad guys ever. What is it talking about here? Yeah, it's just it's just the devil and his angels. <laughs> oh, just the devil and his angels. Okay, just the devil. That's it. You know, that's all we have to go up against. But I think one one of the things that Paul is getting at is this: every realm of spiritual existence is aligned. You know, in in terms of the dark forces of spiritual existence, they are aligned against us. And so Paul intentionally, I think, wants us to understand this is a big war. This is this is really important, and you need to be aware of what you're up against. I think he's describing it in these sort of detailed terms where he breaks it all down because he wants us really to take it very seriously. You know, mm-hmm. it's not uh, – and, you know, it's, it, I don't think that we wouldn't take it seriously if I walked up and said, guess what, today, Sam, you're going to be going up against the devil and all of his angels. You would probably be concerned about that. But then if I come to you, and instead of using that language, I come to you and say, all right, Sam, today you're going to be going up against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers in the present darkness, and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. At that, yeah, exactly. At that point, you're going to stop and go, um, are you going to give me anything a, a to take help. with me? Yeah, exactly. A little help. <laughs> little help. Yes. So... In some sense, where we're, it talks about wrestling here. We wrestle against flesh and blood. Um, yeah, that's no accident there. What's, that's connecting back to Jacob, right? So, Yeah, totally. So here it's come, Paul is coming to us and saying, hey, we're wrestling against these spiritual beings that are dark forces. And so I think when he uses that word wrestle, it's the same word, same Greek word that's used in the Septuagint, uh, the Old Testament translation, when Jacob wrestles against God. It's the same, same word there. And so when you hear that, you're going, hey, I remember, you know, the beginning of Israel. Jacob is kind of the founder of Israel. When his name is changed to Israel, he becomes, you know, the father of the 12 tribes and all the the Jewish nation. And Jacob is pretty nasty character. And the early part of his life, he's always, his name means deceiver, literally, mm-hmm. schemer. Um, and so he, his, if, you, if you read the story of Jacob, he schemes his dad out of the blessing. He schemes his brother out of the birthright. He's always doing things very selfishly. And you get to this place, you know, his brother, he schemed out of a birthright and a blessing. And so his brother Esau wants to kill him. Jacob runs away and he goes and he builds a family with wives and children and he finds out that Esau is coming after him while Jacob is on his way home with his two wives, two concubines, and all of his children. And I love this story. When he hears that Esau is coming, he comes up to a place called the Jabbok River. And he's like, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm in peril, I'm in peril. And so he takes his wives and kids and pushes them ahead of him across the Jabbok River, like human shields, so that 
if Esau comes, you know, he's got to go through them before he gets to Jacob. Real dirtbag move. Like, you're not supposed to go, oh, yay, Jacob there. He's not a good guy, right? But then he comes across the Lord, an angelic form, and he sees the Lord, and Jacob's always wanting every blessing he can find. He schemes his way into it. And so he goes to this guy, and he says, you know, who are you? You know, they have this conversation. Jacob grabs hold, and they start wrestling. And Jacob says, I will not let go until you give me a blessing. There he is again, very self-absorbed. Sure. They wrestle all night. Jacob's exhausted. And finally, the, the angel of the Lord, Jesus, before he takes on flesh, looks at him and says, who are you? And Jacob, for the first time in his life, is honest. He takes the name that bears shame, deceiver. I am Jacob. And this is where Jacob's life changes. The Lord looks at him when he comes in humility of recognizing who he really is. And he says, no, I'm changing your name to Israel, for you have wrestled with God and prevailed. What? And you think, Good Lord. And so notice this. Jacob, when he has his moment to change in this wrestling match, right, this wrestling with positive forces of light, God allows Jacob to win. Hmm. That's what he does with us. When we wrestle with God, he allows us to win, and then he changes our identity, and that changes our behavior. So Jacob gets this new name. He finds that he's accepted by God. He doesn't have to scheme after birthrights and blessings and everything else. He has the love of God, the promise of God. You have prevailed. And what does he do? The next morning, he goes, gathers up his family, puts them behind him, and he walks out to confront Esau, kneeling, willing to give up his life. And so that's that's kind of what Paul's whole message is. Like, you don't just change behavior. You change identity. And when your identity is changed in who you are or whose you are, it will change your behavior. And so I think when Paul says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood but against all these forces of darkness, there's there's this not-so-subtle hint that you better have wrestled with God first and you better have been given a new identity. You know, it's like... That wrestling match has to happen before this wrestling match. Hmm. That's interesting. So we get to verse 13 then where it begins to describe the actual armor of God, the actual armor pieces. Um, But before we do that, one of the things that I noticed in verse 13 and 14 was the use of the word stand. Mm-hmm. Um, verses 13 and 14 are, Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. I was like, as I was looking at this, it doesn't say, it, it, at least as I'm reading it, I'm not seeing, I'm seeing a defensive posture, Sam. It's not saying that these armor pieces and this weapon are going to let me defeat the evil forces, but it says that they're going to let me stand firm. That, and, and here's what I took from that, that it's going to be God who wins the battle. You know, we're not being told to go forth and slay our enemies, that, that the goal here to survive this battle is to remain on our feet you know, that, that this is going to be something that's going to allow us to not be overwhelmed by the evil forces of this world that we oppose. Um, <clears throat> how do you see that? Is that, you know, do you see this as being, do you, do you get that same sense that it's really a defensive posture? Yeah, totally. Um, 
you know, that idea of standing, it, and it communicates in English too. Like if I tell you to stand your ground or stand firm, stand strong, you know, you get the, it's almost like a bracing. You, that's the, you're, you're digging in your heels. You're, you're not going to be pushed off center. And, and I think that is definitely communicated here for sure. Hmm. You know, and, and if you look at the Old Testament, I mean, how many times I'm, I, I can't think right offhand where this passage is, but there's many like this where, you know, the people of God are coming up into this mighty battle and the Lord says, all you need to do is stand and be quiet and watch the Lord accomplish victory for you. Um, and in the history of Israel, that happens time and time again. Yeah, it's inter- and I think that it's also interesting because the word stand is used in, in so many different ways, as you say. Um, but it, one of the things that, that for me, at least, if I'm going to stand, it means that I'm not going to show fear. You know, that was sort of a, yeah. a key sense to me is that we're not to show fear. There's no retreat. Yeah. Now, um, it's also, I think, interesting to me that we shifted from back in verse 11 Paul was saying put on the whole armor of God and here in verse 13 he, he says mm-hmm. take up the whole armor of God um, I feel like there's a, a shift there a little bit like it's a like going from put on to take up is this idea that there's a sense of urgency you know it's almost like he was preparing us and now he's saying alright you're stepping into the battle you need to be proactive about this this is not something that uh, is going to be it's, yes, it's available to you, but if you don't do something, you're not going to be able to take advantage of it. Yeah. Would you agree with that? And I think one of the things that's – yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think – but in addition to that, I think this this passage, we, we tend to think when we hear the armor of God, the whole armor of God, it's like descriptive that God – you know, of God is just a descriptive – and we don't think like this is the very armor that God himself wears and mm-hmm. he's giving it to us. And I think when you do that, like it makes it a lot more precious, you know, that you are wearing the very armor that God himself would wear mm-hmm. and wears in battle. <laughs> That's it's kind of it's an interesting thought. Yeah. It is. Second Corinthians 10, also, when it's talking about the armor of God, kind of fleshes this out. This is what Paul says to the Corinthians. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. So this isn't militant Christianity that we're talking about. He says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And then he clarifies, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Hmm. And so it's so the idea is this warfare is waging war not for geopolitical kingdoms, not for treasure or anything like that, but it's waging war for the hearts and souls of men hmm. and trying to defeat the enemy's stronghold in the hearts and minds of men. So we come to the first piece of armor, and that happens to be the belt of truth um, the first thought to me was that a belt is sort of foundational. Um, you know, I was, I was reading a little bit about this Roman armor, the Praetorian armor, and the belt was being used to carry the sword. And, but more than that, it also um, it was used to kind of keep the rest of the soldier's armor together, to keep it close to his body, and mm-hmm. it would prevent him from getting entangled as he moved through the battle and moved through maybe the, the you know, the, the, if they were fighting in, in – in a wooded area, he's not going to get caught up in the underbrush sort of thing. 
And I thought, you know, that's true with us too, isn't it? That that being truthful is something that that keeps us free from entanglements. Yeah. I, when we were talking about this earlier, you talked about how the belt kind of brings in and secures all the other, you know, many of the other pieces of art to itself. So like the breastplate hooks down into the belt so that, you know, when you're going, it doesn't, you know, pull up over your head or whatever. It keeps you mobile. It keeps the whole piece of your armor working together. Um, and it's fascinating. You know, it carries your treasure. It would carry their money bags. It would carry all these things. And so the truth is the sword, the sword of the spirit, the word of God. It, it's your treasure. It's all these things. And it holds you together is the big idea. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting that you pointed out to me when we were talking about this earlier that uh, uh, this verse doesn't actually say put a belt on. <laughs> right. That it yeah. just says put truth on. It says to wrap <laughs> your waist in truth or gird your waist in truth. Uh, I think it's correct yeah. to infer a belt like a Roman soldier would wear. But it's interesting to me that um, – that really the point is that that truth is going to be foundational in this armor. Um, and mm-hmm. I think, again, that that's the – when it's describing these demonic forces and the forces of evil that are arrayed against us, it's always using phrases like they're deceitful and they're deceit and they're, they're lies and so forth. So the, you know, the most foundational distinction between the people of God and the forces of this world should be truthfulness. The people of God yeah. should be known for their truthfulness. Um, yeah. I think sometimes – that gets lost, you know. It's it's really popular these days to shade things one way or another, or to withhold information that you know would have somebody, you know, you, you know that if you say something, somebody's going to come to a different conclusion than you want them to. And so, well, I didn't lie, yeah, but you didn't tell them the, the whole truth. You didn't bring everything out. Um, and so, I do think that that's uh, that, you know that. It's really important from from this description to recognize that our truthfulness is really a foundational thing in terms of being able to wear the armor of God. Mm-hmm. And there's a there's a big notion of readiness in this. So it's like, you know, when a, when a soldier would get home, I and mean, we could see this today with like a construction worker. One of the first things you do is you take off your belt that's got all this stuff on it so you can relax. And so there's an idea that when you have your belt on, it's the opposite of relaxing. You're ready to go. Yeah. In fact, when, when Jesus talks about being ready for the second coming, kind of being on watch, one of the things he said, it's translated, stay dressed for action when Jesus says it. But in the Greek, it's literally, let your waist remain girded. In other mm-hmm. words, he's saying, keep your belt on. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Keep your belt on. Be ready to go at any moment. Have all your tools and stuff that you're ready to be in action for at any moment that it requires you, spiritually speaking. Mm-hmm. And so you can never, the idea is you never let your guard down spiritually. You're always, always ready. We're not to take this belt off. You know, we're to keep this belt of truthfulness on us, you know, at all times. Mm-hmm. So after the belt of truth, then it says that we're, that having put on the breastplate of righteousness, um, righteousness, you know, I think it refers to our positional justification, also our ongoing sanctification. There's a couple of big, good religious words for people there. But this idea that righteousness is something that was bought for us 
by Jesus, by his death on the cross. His, you know, that, that our identification with his death on the cross, that's what gives us that positional standing. We are justified. Our sins are paid for. Mm-hmm. But there's also this idea of salvation is also this, this ongoing sanctification as part of that righteousness. And that's this process of dying every day, you know, dying to self every day and following him every day and, and becoming more like him as time goes on. That's this process of, of sanctification sanctification and this combination of things our standing and this process that we are engaged in they create this breastplate that protect our hearts and our other vital organs so mm-hmm. this is something to protect us against the attacks of the enemy you know i love that when when because that word righteousness like has so many negative connotations you think self-righteousness or somebody that's holier than thou but the the basic meaning behind it, like you talked about being justified in front of god it's it's having the approval it's it's having God look at you and to be in right relationship with you and so like people will look and you know the breastplate of righteousness you, your heart is going to be exposed and vulnerable to a million different things, and so what we end up doing is we take these idols and we try to find our value and those things um we guard our heart by saying look at me i'm i'm really attractive and that's going to be what defines me and that's going to be what makes me feel nice and secure or it's going to be money or my job or maybe even my family like but the problem with all those things are like if if i if i make my whole life about finding approval that righteousness Mm -hmm. in the eyes of anybody other than god it's guaranteed to fail eventually. Yeah. It's always a guaranteed fail. Your money is going to leave you. Your looks are going to leave you. Your job is not as secure as you might think it is. You know, people die sadly enough. Like if I and and the other part of that is it's if if I find my identity and my right rightness with existence in the eyes of my wife, that's a burden she shouldn't ever have to bear like she's she can't (laughs) she can't fulfill all the longings that i have it's unfair to expect her to so the idea is when you go when jesus gives you his righteousness his perfect righteousness and you wear that as a breastplate your heart is now unassailable in the eternal sense it's like what can take that away what can take his righteousness away from you? Right. Nothing. No economic downturn, time, you know, the loss of everything you have and everyone you have in this world can never, ever, ever penetrate the righteousness that Christ has given you. It's eternal. No one can take it away. That love, that security is absolutely unshakable. And so any other form of trying to be right in the world is the idea. It's going to fail you. Your heart is going to get damaged. So put on his righteousness. It can't be taken away from you. The other thing, too, I think is the breastplate of righteousness is there to defend us. And what's it going to defend us against? I think that the thing that the enemy uses most often is to accuse us of our own failings. You know, it's it's to play back those things mm-hmm. in our minds that, sure. we, that we know about ourselves. And the whole point of this breastplate of righteousness, of this understanding of our of where we stand, that we stand before God justified, and that the process that we're in of of 
of peeling away those things that those weights that need to be dropped and 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 dying to ourselves mm-hmm. and becoming more like him that understanding the reality of who we are but also then what god has done allows us to look at those accusations and say yeah okay <laughs> yeah. yes yeah. i mean I, but it's even it's like it's like that's all you got yeah. man if you really knew me i'm a lot worse than, than that like right. but that's not the measure of our value like because it is given by jesus you're absolutely right it gives you freedom from where the enemy wants to come in and go if people only knew who the, you really were, right. then everyone would hate you. Everybody would think you're a, you know, a slime ball. When you put on the breastplate of righteousness, you have the absolute right standing and approval of the only being in the universe whose opinion ultimately matters. Yeah. Yeah, that's very true. And it is that's I think that's the sense in which this breastplate of righteousness is going to be our, you know, our primary defense against those accusations. Verse 15 says, "And as shoes, wait, wait, whoops, wait. Wait, wait, wait. I think it's fascinating that when when Paul writes to the Thessalonians, so this he would have written to the Thessalonians before he wrote this letter to the Ephesians, but when he describes the breastplate, he says having put on the breastplate of faith and love and a helmet the hope of salvation. So he keeps, and when he talks about those two things, he talks about the helmet of salvation still, but he almost replaces, it's like he sees righteousness as faith and hope. So he says the breastplate of faith and hope. I thought that was instructive that he brings those two together, that your righteousness doesn't come by your good deeds, right? It's not by what you do, it's faith and love. That is your righteousness. When you have faith in Christ, you are clothed in his righteousness. Mm, that's good. So verse 15 says, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Um, you know, there, that's just interesting to me because um, footwear is so important in this metaphor. Um, it, you know, the gospel, the, 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 the shoes in particular of the Roman armor were very, very advanced for their time. They were designed in a way that provided comfort for long, fast marches, and and, and they had spikes on the bottom of them to give them... Um, we're listening to the airplanes go by. Yeah, that's, <laughs> to, a, that's a motorcycle. Oh, okay. A crotch rocket. Okay. <laughs> to, <laughs> to give them solid footing on, you know, on the slippery ground in battle when the blood of the enemy is down or you're standing in the mud or whatever the circumstances are. And these, the, you know, the design of the Roman footwear contributed to them always arriving before their enemy expected them, like you, mm-hmm. they caught the enemy off guard, and they were always in better shape to fight than you expected them to be. Oh, they had a long, hard march. Yeah, but you know what? Because of the fact that they had these comfortable shoes on and because it gave them this sure footing, they arrived sooner and more ready to fight. And I thought, you know, it's interesting because the gospel... The gospel is something that's going to move me. It's mm-hmm. going to make me mobilize. Yeah, and it gives you traction and power to press into the enemy. So one, one of the ways that those cleated sandals or shoes would have helped the Roman Empire is in the ancient world when you had all these soldiers down in a, in a field, by the time they were in the midst of the battle, all of the grass and field was torn up and reduced to mud. It became very slippery and dangerous. And so having these shoes that allowed you to just deeply take root 
and the ground made you immovable. Like you could stand and press into your enemy that would just slide right back because the ground was a mess. And so that idea, the gospel of peace allows you to stand firm and press into the enemy. You're, you're not retreating. You're not going to just slide right back because if you are, if you're wearing and notice it says having put on the readiness, that word is, Maybe a bad translation. I know when I was doing research on this, in the Hellenistic Greek, that same word that's translated readiness is often like a firm foundation. So it might be implying like put on the firm footing Mm -hmm. given by the gospel of peace. And so that's the idea. You're immovable. You've got the gospel. All the, the enemies in the world can't push me off of my terrain when I'm rooted in the gospel. And even though I think that's a very real sense that, that we are immovable, that it gives us this firm footing and it makes us able to stand and, and not be pushed around, it also, as I look at it, this idea is that you're – I was thinking, is it Romans? It's funny that I can't remember Romans, but the passage that says, <laughs> how beautiful are the feet of those that yeah, bring the gospel. Romans quotes it, but it's he's pulling that out of uh, Isaiah. Okay. So, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. That's Isaiah 52. So this idea that um, the gospel is something that is is mobile, you know, and in, in thinking about that, I'm thinking the thing that we have in the gospel is not something that we should sit and keep to ourselves, that mm-hmm. the gospel is something that is designed to mobilize the people of God. Um, so I thought that was kind of a cool idea, too, that the gospel was assigned to the shoes, to the things that let yeah, you cool. move. Um, you know, we're not supposed to sit in our holy huddle and keep the gospel to ourselves. Yes, yeah, we're supposed to stand on a firm footing with the gospel. It's not, we're, we're not going to get tossed around by every wackadoodle televangelist idea that we hear because we have the gospel and we, un- and we know the gospel. But it's also something that this should be the fuel, the motivation that gets us to get up and get out. Yeah. You know, when I when I think of those cleated shoes, the the image that comes to my mind is taking two professional football teams, taking one offensive line and one defensive line, giving the offensive line cleated shoes and then letting the defensive line get up there in their, you know, tennis shoes. <laughs> They're going to get demolished. They're going to get absolutely pushed around because the other team has those cleats. They're going to press in, they're going to advance and they're almost unstoppable. Unless you have something that gives you traction. And the gospel gives you traction to both press in and to withstand the barrage. Yeah, that's great. So verse 16 reads, In all circumstances take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Now, as often as you and I take our pot shots at the translation choices that the ESV makes, I would like to give them credit. <laughs> hmm. In this case, in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the authorized version, the King James Version, it translated that above all. And when I was a younger man and the King James Bible was the only Bible out there, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I, you know, look, I got my first... Uh, uh, I bought my first Bible in 1975 for myself as a, yeah, after becoming a Christian. And, it, th- you know, you had your choice between the Revised Standard Version, which I knew to be the <laughs> liberal translation, and the King James Version. So I had a King James Version. The New American Standard Bible didn't show up until the late 1970s, the New International, not until the 80s. When I say the King James Version was it... That was it. Yeah, <laughs> the New King James come out. The New King James came out in 1982. 
All right. That really was it. It was it, man. It's like, you're like, oh, you always quote the King James. Like, that was the foundation for like the first five years of my Christian deep study. So this verse in the, in the King James read, above all, take up the shield of faith. And we were always sort of taught that that was a, a scene of, of preeminence, that above all, you want the shield of faith. Um, and that's not what this is saying at all. The, 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 new, the English Standard Version actually has it right. It's saying in all circumstances. It's not, it's not priority. It's universality. He's, you know, Paul is saying that you're going to need the shield of faith everywhere <laughs> all, at all times. This isn't the most important thing. But it's the thing that you're always going to use. Faith is going to become foundational in everything. It's going to be, and it's also interesting too because the word he uses here is thyreon, um, and that's actually mm-hmm. tied to thyra, which is the word for uh, door. And so this mm-hmm. was the Romans used to carry these. These weren't like individual shoulders, individual sol- <laughs> individual <laughs> soldiers' shields. But these were these big shields that they carried that they would pull up over the top of themselves to defend themselves against arrows because the archers would rain down trying to pick them off as they were moving in so that the shield of faith, this door-sized shield, wasn't just about protecting you. You used it to protect others around you, too. Mm, That's fascinating. That's a cool point. But one of the reasons why Paul – one of the reasons why Paul – adds that these are flaming arrows is that they would go up against enemies and a lot of times the enemies would have these wooden shields as well and so the idea when you shoot flaming arrows there's a couple reasons why you want to do that when you're firing fiery arrows into someone else's camp it's causing destruction that then distracts them so that they have to go tend to this emergency and then intending and forgetting about taking care of themselves they get picked off but then the other side of that is if you had a flaming arrow that stuck through you know these these were usually wooden shields that were covered with animal skins if you had a flaming arrow that hit your shield and it caught these animal skins and your your wooden shield on fire what do you have to do mm. you know you're you're coming around the top of it and you're going to be exposed as you're trying to pull this arrow out and so then all the other arrows that are coming behind are picking off people whose shields are on fire and that's it makes it really fascinating one of the promises Paul gives here is that you know you take up this shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one in other words faith real faith doesn't allow you to get distracted by the chaos that the enemy wants to unleash on you mm-hmm. this shield extinguishes the arrow so that you don't have to you know in a panic lower your defenses to check it out um I was also thinking that um, the idea that these attacks, uh, because again, he's using this metaphor of the flaming arrows, and those flaming arrows weren't aimed at you. They didn't, you know, they fired those flaming arrows, like you were saying, into the camp of the enemies, and into, you know, they rained them down randomly, trying to cause chaos and mayhem everywhere. Yeah. And it would and have been terrifying. It would have been. But this idea that. Yeah, part of that. Well, the idea that like the breastplate of righteousness, for example, we were talking about, those were attacks that, that were aimed right at you. Sam, I'm going to tell you things about yourself, things you know about yourself to make you doubt that you're called to this ministry or doubt that, doubt that you're qualified to do this. Who are you to say these things? And so I'm attacking you personally. But in this case, I see this as this is a situation where this, these are the bad guys just throwing it out there, just firing a broadside to see who they can stick an arrow in. It's not necessarily aimed at you. 
And that fit in with this idea that I had of this of these uh, shields, that these huge shields that they would mm-hmm. lift up to protect both them and the people around them. And I was thinking about that in, in light of our current situation. Of course, we're all here, you know, sheltering in place and locked down to try to avoid this virus that's going around, that's hurting, that's killing people and, and, and injuring people. And, and we're all very concerned about it. And in this current situation, I'm, I, I'm thinking about the, you know, it's the shield of faith is um, I, I think there's a sense in which our faith is at a time like this can be used to shield others around us from this fear. You know, there's this scattered fear. Everybody's afraid. And when the church and when the people of God have faith and don't fear in the midst of this, it's something that shelters the people around us as well or can help do that. That's good. I think that's spot on. You know, it's just kind I of that spot on, you know. You know, the, the so you, whole you idea. can make you can make applications from Paul's stuff. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know one of the one of the guys that writes about the way that that the Romans used to do this. His name is Livy, and he would talk about how the Romans would often start their attacks while it was still dark out before daylight came. And they would do their best to surround the enemy camp from every which way. And while it was still dark, they would fire all these arrows. But the the optics of it looked absolutely dreadful, that just fire was raining down on you from every which direction. And I think there's a lot of times, like you talk about, the enemy wants to make everybody terrified. Mm -hmm. You know, the Romans were masters at that. But if, if he can get everybody, you know, because part of the, when you're a, a front in an army and you, you get that wall of shields that are being held up, you know, to protect your neighbor and the person who's next to you and everything else, if one of them pulls away, you know, you've, you've got a breaking point for infantry to plow through or for the arrows to come through. And so the enemy is going to try to terrorize and it's faith that allows us to stand strong, shoulder to shoulder, not give an inch, and trust that these shields will extinguish those mm-hmm. arrows. Yeah. But there's a million ways where, you know, I think about the ways that the enemy can gain traction and getting people to drop their faith, to drop their shield of faith that's protecting them and their brothers and sisters mm-hmm. for just a moment. And I mean, there's massive implications like you're just talking about. And this this virus, you know, uh, this thing is, is certainly serious when it comes to health. But you look at the implications of what fear on, added to that is going to cause and the harm that fear alone can cause – that's unnecessary, you know, when, when you just panic and you don't believe that God's in control of all this. That brings us to the end here of part one of our conversation on the last half of Ephesians uh, chapter six. We have broken this week's podcast, as we said at the start, into two parts uh, because we ran a little long and we ended up with two episodes that were about the length of our normal podcast. So now that you've listened to part one, uh, we will pick back up right where we left off in part two. So I encourage you to go get that and listen to it as well. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.